0: I spoke with uh, Representative Katie Porter in November, obviously before the recent events in the Capitol. It was important to put that timestamp on this recording, but I think it's equally, if not more important, to hear the Congresswoman's thoughts on Congress and trust and where government should move from here. So I hope you enjoy it.
1: I'm 46 years old. They've had to hear a lot of times, well, you know, it's better than it used to be women and you know i I don't think that's my goal to have it not get worse my goal is actual equality welcome back to
0: ladies first with laura brown each week i sit down with a major lady and ask her about what she does how she does it and what we can learn from her now this time around we nabbed u.s representative katie porter from california who was just re-elected in november she's progressive she's powerful have you seen her with a whiteboard so hard Well, firstly, Congresswoman, I wanted to say I'm just your freaking number one fan. Well, actually, my whole team is and everybody is. We would call you every week. Congresswoman Katie Porter, I wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today on Ladies First. And Ladies First refers to the women who are first in what they do. And women we, I, myself, and, and many others deeply, deeply admire. And I guess I'm hosting, so I'll tell you what I admire about you, is your currency, and also, most importantly, your command that you wield seemingly so lightly, and and which has made you as celebrated as you've become quite rapidly. And I love to see, you know, in our culture of celebrity and all this kind of stuff, a woman being celebrated because she's kicking ass and doing the right thing and on the right side of history and holding people to account and seeing a woman being celebrated purely for the work she does and who she stands up for so I like to distill all the women that I've been talking to for this as one would a fragrance and your your quality I think about with you is is command when did you start to, to understand that you had a way of dismantling or articulating an issue that made people pay attention to you
1: well, I definitely talked a lot as a kid. In fact, um, I was a straight-A student, but I think I had talks too much as the teacher comment. And so I think relatively early on, you know, I I learned that there was power in communication and in talking to people. I never felt that it was most important to be popular, but more that I have people to engage with. I think I've always had kind of a take charge energy. I think that came, partly was reinforced in my career choice as a professor. You hear the phrase a lot, make sure you have command of your classroom. And it's not so that you can silence the students. It's actually so that you can hear them. Right. Right. It's so that you can hear the quiet student. You can recognize and see the student who needs a little bit more help, the talkative kind of being in charge, wanting to win an argument thing goes back pretty pretty far. And my mom tells this story about when I was about three and I was being punished. I'm sure I did something very reasonable. Was, <laughs> and my mom and dad said, you go to your room. Went in my room and then I came back out and they said, you have to go back to your room. And I was like arguing with them about the merits of my punishment. And my parents said, not one more word, Catherine. And I said, "Okay." Like obviously, intentionally under intentionally knowing that by saying "okay," I was saying another word, right? Yeah. So I've always had that that kind of capacity. When did you realize that you could start using that
0: command to further someone's position who may not be able to articulate it?
1: I think when I was younger, a lot of that work was direct service. So I did a lot of community service in high school, and continued that in college. When I began to think about it more from an advocacy perspective, was when I started to work on consumer protection issues and at first approached it from kind of a research standpoint. Then when Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, um, then our attorney general asked me to serve as the monitor for this big mortgage bank settlement, five big banks who had cheated homeowners and they promised to change their practices and they promised to pay some money. But the really important thing was the change in practices. And that was really where I had to think a lot about I'm one person. Um, I mean, I remember when she asked me about for the, to do the job, I was like, well, where are my powers defined? Right. And she's like, um, I just want you to get in there. I And I would go to meet with the banks and they would have 10 lawyers and five executives in this fancy boardroom. So how do you create power in that kind of situation, especially when there's all these institutional forces on their side, they're the repeat right. player. I'll never forget one of my, my very first meeting with Bank of America, I made my um, secretary come with me. So I would have like staff. <laughs> Yeah, and I really had onto something because she did an amazing job. She actually wound up getting promoted and was my chief of staff because I ran that operation. But I think with the big banks, what I saw over and over again was if I did the homework, right? If I had the facts on my side and could present them, then I would be able to prevail. So I remember once we were talking about a house that was blighted. I said this home was blighted. I said they hadn't done anything to fix it. And they got on the phone and they were giving me all these reasons why, all these things we've done. We fixed that house. We boarded the windows. We did this. And I said, "Um, hang, hang on, guys. Could you check your email? And there were pictures of the house that I had taken the day before. Oh, touche. And I said, do you still want to argue about whether the house is blighted or do you just want to move on to like how we can fix it? So it didn't occur to them that I would actually go right. look at the house.
0: But isn't that funny? Your, your instinct, number one, I think just in hearings now, every now and then, just throw in a little touche. Just, just see what happens. What I I love about that anecdote is Kamala Harris also like just saying you can do it because the trust in you that you would do your homework and you do walk in the room with that knowledge and I love that it's two women who are just going yeah just go in the room you know arm yourself with whatever but isn't that lovely to to be to be trusted and also to trust yourself enough that you have that information but how how lovely is it to work with, with women or people that go, yes, this is enough, and knowing that what you know is enough. You don't have to have 10 people in a room and a bunch of malarkey.
1: Well, I think the reality is that women have very often had yeah. to create their own power um, because we aren't historically in these roles. And so I think there's a, a long and interesting history of women who've had to find ways to have influence or to make change in situations where it wasn't clear that that they were going to be given that that role, right?
0: We're talking a, a few weeks after the election, you won re-election, um, which I would hope was the easiest win, <laughs> win ever, and, and to see uh, you know uh, Kamai Harris become the first uh, female VP, and I think it was this the election was so drawn out and stressful. That I think people forgot some of the glory of it by the time it was really announced. So how did that feel for you, obviously, to win office again, but to see uh, see a female vice president?
1: Yeah, it was an amazing feeling, both because I know her values and what kind of person she will be in this role Mm -hmm. as vice president, but also to see some of those barriers break down. I'm 46 years old. They've had to hear a lot of times, well, you know, it's better than it used to be for women. It's, and, and, you know, I, I don't think that's my goal, to have it not get worse. My goal is actual equality. And, you know, this came up back in 2018 when I was first elected. The most common question I got asked, and it was big news media cycle for a long time, was there are so many women in the House of Representatives, like so right. many. Yeah. There are not <laughs> so many women in the House of Representatives. Even at, at our biggest number, we were 23%.
0: Right, you cleared a low
1: bar. That's a low bar, right? So I think it's really, really important to appreciate that we elected uh, not just a woman, but a woman of color, somebody who charted a different career path and life path, who didn't have children, who didn't marry when she was younger, um, but who Mm -hmm. married later in life and has wonderful stepchildren and a a wonderful identity as a stepmother. So I think it's really um, exciting and inspiring, and I think it's, it's important to take, as you said, that moment to appreciate what this is going to mean.
0: That grace note that I think sometimes got lost through this whole melee. When you first got to D.C., who welcomed you as commanding as you naturally are? You don't know where your office is. You don't know, you know, who was sort of your North Star when you first got there and who's your
1: crew now? one of the things i do very distinctly remember is about march maybe of my time in congress elizabeth warren senator warren who was my professor when i was in law school mm-hmm. called me to check in on me and i'll never forget i was standing in my office it was just sundown like five thirty, and the sun was already going down and i was tired and she said how are you i just want to check in and i was like I- i'm fine and yeah, I'm just, yeah. she's like, well, you know, you know, really, like, how are you really? And I said to her, you know, I just, I don't feel like I found my voice. Right. The institution, the hustle and bustle, the trying to help my children adjust to this idea, all of that was overwhelming. And two or three weeks later, after I had a hearing with JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Diamond. I walked through this budget with him of a worker and talked about how hard it would be for her to make ends meet. Elizabeth called me, and again, I won't forget where I was. I was at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, um, walking to my connection, and she called me, and she was laughing. And she said, well, Katie, I just wanted to let you know, I think you found your voice. And I, I think I have, and I, I don't intend to lose it. But I think there are these moments in our professional and personal lives in which we do kind of lose our voice. I mean, I think for me in the wake of my divorce was a big identity change, and I, I had to kind of reset and find that. And so I think that's that's really important. Two of my very closest friends in Congress are Cindy Axney um, from Iowa and Rashida Tlaib. And these are the two women I sit between. So... Like a lot of things in life, where you sit is your destiny. I sit between those two women, and they represent very different communities, you know, Detroit versus rural Iowa. But these are the kind of women who are just true blue friends. I remember there was one day when I was rushing, I was late for a vote, and Mm -hmm. Chairman Maxine Waters, I mean, she could talk about command. She commands a lot. Of respect, understanding. I would do everything she says forever. She's, yeah, yes. me too. I mean, she's amazing. So I was late. I was rushing to get there, and I, I fell down on the on the uneven bricks, and on my in my heels, and I, I threw open the door for this vote, and I had blood dripping down my leg, and announced my vote right as they were closing it, and then I I made it to my seat and kind of collapsed between Rashida Tlaib and Cindy Axney. and those two. Out of their purses came band aids and ibuprofen and tissues and you know uh, some bass, some um, like Neosporin and did I also need a breath mint and how about some lip balm I mean they're just really really nurturing people and they're just really wonderful friends. So tell me when when you started obviously that first
0: hearing was broadcast everywhere and your impact started to bounce outside of yourself and outside of that room. How did that first feel when you were like, "Oh, okay, I'm all over twitter I'm you know this is this is a thing how did you
1: how did you digest it? I think the thing that that I remember was reading some of the comments, and the ones that really stuck with me were people who said things like, "I hate politics, but I'm all in for this or I've never heard of this lady before, but this is what we need more of. And people who said, I'm a Republican and I don't agree with this lady about anything except this is my life story. This this is me right now trying to make ends meet, working at a retail job, for example. And so being told that you that you are correctly and accurately and powerfully, hopefully, telling someone's story really is the core of what we mean when we say representative. Right. Right? And so we, yeah. we go by Congresswoman more than I go by representative. But I think about that word a lot and what that means to represent. And that's everything from the worker at, you know, that that job that couldn't make ends meet to patients who who just want to know, why do my prescription drugs keep getting more expensive? Even though I'm taking medications that have were invented years ago and were developed on the government's research dollars, right? It's it's just confounding.
0: that like I'm Australian. We have socialized medicine, so it's just like you go to the doctor and your prescription is twenty bucks, and maybe you get fifteen back. But if you're sitting there and with you know with these kind of men and, and all their swagger and all their armor, when you see that there's you've made a point, a representative point, and you've punctured something. And you can maybe see the wind come out a little bit. How does that feel to look at? When you see them start to go, oh, she's
1: got me. Well, I mean, I I don't have always a sense of of whether I've been successful or not because I'm very much in the moment. I'm not playing a game of gotcha. It's a little bit like what I used to call on my students. I'm rooting for them. To, to have mastered the material with some of these people, sometimes it's 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 frustrating. You spent days thinking about this answer, and then they're just filibustering or or trying to evade you. But I I don't I definitely don't have a sense like I've often said to my staff when I walk out, what do you think? Like, did, do you think we, do you think it worked? Like, did we did right. we get them? And so I often don't have a good sense of it in that moment
0: because it seems like you know for anybody watching that you you've come in there you know armed fully fully ready to go got the, and you have this command but what what intimidates you
1: <laughs> no, the fact that you paused <laughs> i don't know that anything intimidates me i mean the thing that that i have the most fear about of course is my children like anything that relates to my children just knocks me on my rear, right? So worrying about them not really is um, unsettling. But I, I don't know that I worry about much of anything in Congress. I care, but I try not to worry. I try to focus much more on what I can do or what I should be doing, or even if it's not possible today, what could be possible tomorrow? What could be possible next year to solve these problems? I guess the biggest thing I would say is I'm worried about being, you ask me what I fear, right? Yeah, it's being wrong. Right. Like, I, I really, really go into these hearings wanting to be telling the truth and getting witnesses to tell the truth. And so, I guess I, I, one of the things that I think about a lot is, you know, really doing the research, really trying to double check my facts, really trying to understand the issue.
0: Welcome back to Ladies First with me, Laura Brown, editor in chief of InStar Magazine. I'm talking to Congresswoman Katie Porter of the House of Representatives about all the ass she kicks every day. Do you remember? This is really important baby's first whiteboard, where you were when he picked up that marker.
1: Did you just feel a spiritual connection? No, you know what's funny is I used a whiteboard every day when I was a teacher. So I taught something really exciting. Um, It was called the Uniform Commercial Code. It's exactly as sexy and interesting as it sounds. That material, at least at first glance to students, this is not constitutional law. This is not criminal law. So when you're teaching students like the three elements of a valid security interest, you really have to think about how are you gonna make it interesting? So I use the whiteboard all the time as a professor. The only part that's frustrating in Congress is that, like, I want it mounted on the wall. Yeah, you want have, to, why do you still have to balance yeah, it like that? I mean, I now have several sizes. Look, the whiteboard is a tool to help get everyone on the same page. It's designed to, to focus our attention, to present a fact, and then to, to kind of push the witness toward actually answering the question.
0: Do you ever get like adrenal failure after these hearings? You're going to go home if you've had a particularly grueling hearing with a particularly obstreperous, entitled, obfuscating—I'm using a lot of words here—gentleman, and and you, and maybe you've maybe you've slayed, maybe you've made your points, maybe you've been frustrated. Um, what do you do when you get
1: home from something like that? Oh, I mean, my day will usually go about six to seven hours, or maybe 10, depending on the time. After one of my most successful hearings, I did it from home. We was during COVID. And I was sitting in my living room, and I was asking the questions. And when I got done, I just, like, burst into tears. Because it's adrenaline, right? And it's not fear, but it's, you know, it's it's really wanting to, to get it right. But a lot of times, by the time I get home after a day in, in D.C., I'm so tired that, like, I'm just... I'm just looking at, like, you know, kitten videos on YouTube like everybody else. I mean, it's really a good time for me to to serve me up some clickbait because I'm probably going to go for it at that point.
0: I mean, let's just praise kittens,
1: everybody. Kittens are getting us through.
0: What's it like being like if you've been at home in uh, California, like uh, doing a hearing online? Your kids are probably homeschooling. How the heck do you manage that to go, all right, I'm going to go just – i am going to go slay a dragon in this room, so can you not knock on the door?
1: Yeah, so I actually don't have a ton of extra room in my house. And it's California, and I have three kids. So for a while, I tried to do things in my bedroom. I remember I was doing a, a primetime TV interview in my bedroom, and I was standing in front of my door. I had the door as the backdrop. And right, maybe 30 seconds before the commercial was going to end and I was going to come up, my daughter came busting in, buck naked, carrying her mermaid robe, and wanted help with running a bath. Like, I got her out of there in time, but it was stressful. So I actually did the opposite. Rather than trying to hide from my kids, I kind of hijacked the main living area. So I do most of my work either in my kitchen or in my dining room living room. And so, the, you know, the big thing is you need to get off the video games. You need to turn the sound down. I mean, the other day I was... Talking to a friend on the phone or something. Some of my kids are like, "She's on a Zoom," and I was like, "No, guys, I'm not." And they're like, "Oh well, why are you using your Zoom voice?"
0: <laughs> How have they reacted to you know you becoming not uh, not only a representative but a, a real popular culture figure? how how do they
1: deal with that one of them told me the other day that I was overrated so they they definitely keep it real you know my daughter said the other day you know people said you're a famous mom and I told them you're just not (laughs) right so you know to them I'm still their mom and that's the important role to play for them I've also seen that they have gotten to learn a lot And gotten to see things. And so, you know, the other night my son said, I'm going to be, you know, president. And part of me was like, oh, like every other white man, you know, here we go. (laughs) But, you know, the fact that he's really knowledgeable about politics and really interested Mm. in it and reads a lot about it and consumes a lot of not just kind of politics of the moment, but actually is reading a lot of political philosophy. And he's 14. Damn.
0: Yeah. Put him to work, he can carry a whiteboard around. I want to ask, what are you
1: ambitious for in any part of your life or all? Oh, what am I ambitious for? Uh Okay, so I I have a real mission here. My goal is to get the American people to trust Congress not to necessarily agree with everything we do. That just seems like a fool's errand in a democracy. If you look over the last 30 or 40 years, whether Democrats are in charge, whether Republicans are in charge, one thing has been pretty steady. In the last 30 or 40 years, the American people's opinion of those who do this work has gone down. And it's in the, you know, it's in the 12%, 18%, 22%. I'm in a really good month. We might get to 30. This is a problem, (laughs) right? And so I think what I'm trying to do in those hearings, for example, in a town hall, if I'm thinking about how to communicate in a newsletter, even to my constituents, in a press interview, I'm really trying to think about how do I show people what's at stake here? What I've done to listen to them, what I've done to learn about the problem and possible solutions, and to explain why I've reached the conclusion that I have. I mean, given that Congress has had this popularity problem for like 40 years, I'm not sure how quick of a fix this is going to be, but I'm, I'm really hell-bent on doing it.
0: I do think that's why you've reached the profile that you've reached as rapidly as you have, is because you're a good person who wants to do the right thing and who puts it elegantly and commandingly. And because that is seen, rightly or wrongly, as a rarity in in that environment, what's the most badass thing you've ever done?
1: After college, I taught for a year in Hong Kong. And then I took a trip around the world by myself for five months. And I just have to say to my parents, what were you thinking like who would let their kid do that under what circumstances especially a kid who grew up in iowa like i had no business doing this but i had a marvelous time i went everywhere from nepal to vietnam to india egypt morocco all of these different places myself
0: jeez louise what did you learn about yourself on that trip i'm sure it was some hairy or
1: isolating moments It was probably the longest I've gone without talking, right? Because in a lot of these countries, there weren't necessarily English speakers. So, you know, moments of learning how to be comfortable alone, learning how to sort of find your your own moments of joy without there being another person. I think that was really, really important.
0: So, yeah, we're both chatty and you, you, you want to keep a room alive, right? And it does take a bit, I think as you get older, a little bit of like, I can let Let it breathe or let myself breathe, except not not when you're most needed, Brett Porter, not when you're most needed. Um, In your Twitter bio,
1: it says you're an amateur surfer. How amateur are you? And I was actually going to say, when you asked me what was the most brave thing, you know, badass thing, I was actually the other thing I was debating. I was going to say two. The other one I was going to say was surfing, which is, you know, I grew up in Iowa, far from the ocean. I'm a fine swimmer. Not great, but I mean, fine. But the ocean's a whole different thing. And you know it took a lot of courage for me personally to grab that board and walk out there and and see what happens. And I remember I my instructor asked me what my goal was. It was a very good thing for a teacher to ask. And I was in a small group of women who were taking these surfing lessons. And the other women had things well, one of them wanted to, to catch a green wave, which means kind of before it's frothy, like as it's bending. Oh. My goal was I didn't want to die. <laughs> I mean, I just, I'm not I'm super, super athletic. I, I just, I didn't want to die. Like I didn't want to get hurt. Like that was my goal.
0: I find uh, surfing also terrifying because that water is unsupervised unsupervised water is not where it's at okay so we sort of roll towards the end of this with 10 questions just you know sassy little vignettes and they are called 10 firsts number one first drink you order a whiskey sour nice first thing you look at on your phone in the morning twitter what if you look at the phone in the morning twitter and it's your face staring at you
1: That does not happen.
0: (laughs) Not yet. First person you call?
1: My mom. She must be so proud. Oh, she has been talking about, I mean, when I told her I was running for the House of Representatives, and I'd never run for office before, she said, well, what about the Senate? (laughs) All right, mom, we'll get right on that. I mean, you know, she's a tough cookie. I see a theme with your family.
0: And I like it. Uh, the first, if you remember, the first joke you tell
1: or or you remember. Oh, that's a good one. i taught on all these campuses. And so it's what's the best reason to ride the campus bus? Is? So you don't get run over by it. Because <laughs> it's driven by all these student drivers, right? <laughs> yeah. They're hired as like work study jobs to drive the campus bus.
0: So, I see another theme of like not wanting to die. I like it. I I support your goals. Okay, the first, what was your first like fashion splurge or something that you bought that made you feel kind of swish?
1: Probably a pair of Paul Green heels. What color? They were like a kind of a gold sparkly, and they had the perfect heel height and they were comfortable. Somewhere along the way, I had a busy campaign day. And I had to change into flats to go do something, and then I had to change into heels. I literally lost one shoe, but I've since then been subscribed to an eBay search trying to find a complete pair again in my size and type, and I have not succeeded. And it's been like two or three years. Just, but where is that one shoe? I don't know. Oh, you know what? I even went back. I dropped it. I mean, I, I think it fell out in the parking garage or in, you know on the street when I got out of my car.
0: I think we've got to put this out in InStyles ladies, ladies first. If you've seen, what, what left or right foot? Um, I think it was the right foot, Paul Green. In a parking garage? Yeah. Can you please, please call one 800 missing congresswoman Porter shoe, And we'll find it for you. Okay, first time you owned your shit. What do you mean by that? First time you really stood up
1: for something or felt your shoulders were square. And you knew what you were doing probably in college I don't know that's a tough one I don't I think I'm pretty hard on myself like I don't necessarily feel like that ever comes right It's, it's, it's funny some women you say that some people have a
0: very particular thing it doesn't matter because you are constantly owning it every other second okay first thing you turn on tv
1: Oh, I mean, I get no chance. I mean, that is completely, I one, I never get to watch TV, and two, when I do, I have three children and one TV. So the first thing I do when someone turns the TV on is start refereeing arguments about whether or not it's our turn to watch Mandalorian, or we're watching a Disney princess, or we're watching a crime thriller, or, I mean, first thing I do when the TV comes on is is begin to referee that that family debate. How invigorating. Not really.
0: (laughs) Okay, first thing you do or eat when you're stressed?
1: Oh, probably iced coffee. But doesn't that just make you more jangly? I don't know. It's soothing to me because it's cold. I get hot really easily running around, and right. so it's cold. The straw, I think, is soothing. I have to use the straw still. I have a reusable one that I, I carry around. So, I mean, one of my great favorite stories is I drive this minivan, and, you know, so I have the three kids in the back. My daughter was maybe four, mm-hmm. and I was saying something, and my daughter said, Mommy needs a latte. And you said... I feel so seen.
0: Can you sleep okay, though, if you drink iced coffee in the afternoon? Um, I've never been a very good sleeper. You're like a constantly revving engine, aren't you?
1: In kindergarten, we had nap time, and I never fell asleep until one day, and I must have been a little bit sick, because I fell asleep during nap time. And my teacher was so surprised and probably happy that I finally fell asleep, that she let me sleep into recess and I realized that other people were playing and I was sleeping. And I then began a very long, like, anti-nap phase that came from not wanting to miss out. I've gotten over this, but.
0: why no, want to miss out. The only woman who finds coffee relaxing. There's just so much. There's so much to learn here. Okay. Two more things. First, date.
1: Went to a Kansas City Royals game. I didn't really date in high school or college at all. I mean, part of it was the colleges, I, the college and high school I went to just weren't dating places. And I also just bloomed really, really late that way. And then when right. I did, I mean, look, I wasn't that good at it. I, You know, I had a great wedding and not a great marriage, right? That's why it ended. But yeah, going to a Kansas City Royals baseball game. Okay.
0: So second second last, first car you bought.
1: Oh, the first car I drove was this black, dark gray Camaro, kind of, it was like in the mid like early nineties. And the reason I got to drive it is my dad was a small town banker. So when you go to foreclose a car, uh, repossess a car, you, know, you have to drive out to wherever the person lives. Then somebody has to drive the repo car home. So I got this car and I got to drive it around. I had this very like sporty car. So you were a repo man. Yeah, exactly. I was the repo girl. <laughs> okay, last question. What will you do
0: when this G-damn pandemic is over?
1: See my family.
0: Have you not seen them at all? Did you see them in the summer or anything? No, or... I haven't
1: seen my mother in more than a year. Um, I haven't seen my sister in more than a year. Um, so, yeah, see my family. Yeah. My nieces, uh, my nephews, they're, they're fabulous, and I miss them a lot.
0: And Just to all be in, like, a big pile you know, like a big hug pile. Well, look, uh, Congresswoman Katie Porter, may you continue to represent and uh, and may things get a little bit easier in Congress and may, may that trust come back. And I think that you're one of the, the people that will build that. So thank you. Thank you so much.
1: It's absolutely a delight. Thank you again.
0: This has been Ladies First with Laura Brown. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Danielle Roth, Anne Ford, Anne Kane, and Erica Wong. And thanks to Brian Anstey, Molly Stout, and Haley Mason at InStyle. You can find out more at InStyle.com. Find us on Instagram at InStyle Magazine, on Twitter at InStyle, and you can find me on Insta at laurabrown99.